Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Surya Vanka. Surya is a design innovator with over 25 years of hands-on experience, bringing the design of physical and digital products to life. Through Authentic Design, the studio he founded in 2014, Surya is on a mission to unlock the creative potential of every individual, community, and organization. And one of the ways he's doing that is through something that he invented, design swarms. Design Swarms are a democratic design thinking based approach that enables all people to contribute value to the design process, no matter their background or level of design experience. And they've been used by organizations like the Clinton Global Initiative, the United Nations and Global Humanitarian Lab to help tackle a variety of wicked problems, including the opioid epidemic, domestic violence, waterborne diseases, digital equity and ocean pollution. Before founding Authentic Design, Surya was the Director of User Experience at Microsoft based at the Redmond campus. There, he led multiple design teams, including the enterprise-wide design excellence team, and he was a key contributor to Microsoft's experience-led renewal. Over the 16 years that Surya invested at Microsoft, he was able to influence the design of products and services used by billions of people. And now, as fate would have it, He's here with just one other person today, me, on Brave UX. Surya, welcome to the show. Brendan, what a pleasure. After that introduction, that is lovely. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Surya. And as I was saying before we jumped on, I really enjoyed watching your previous talks, the level of insight and energy that you've brought to the design community. It's such a joy to have you on the show. I understand that you grew up in India, but as part of my prep, I didn't discover you speaking much about your time in India before you came to the United States. All I could really find was that you had studied in the 1980s about five and a half years in industrial and product design at what's called the National Institute of Design in Gujarat, which again, I understand is India's premier and first design school. What was it that led you as a, a young person in India growing up? to want to pursue a career in industrial and product design? So I think uh, studying design and discovering that design school in India that you mentioned, the National Institute of Design at Ahmedabad was probably one of the luckiest things that ever happened in my whole life. So the time I was studying in India was I was finishing school and so on. I knew from an early age that I was a tinkerer, I was a maker, mm. I was drawing, I was doing all these things, but this was my hobby. And I didn't mm. know that there was actually people who got paid for this. And there's even <laughs> a discipline that had a name called design. You know, now after all these years, 
one of the joys of my life is that I've had this amazing opportunity to have taught at some of the best design schools around the world. And when I think back at that time at the National Institute of Design in Gujarat, I'm so thankful that's launched me into this journey. So as an 18-year-old, I remember I was lost. I was in engineering school. I didn't quite fit with everything else I did. You know, later on in my career, I've gone deep into engineering. I've written books on engineering. I've written a book on materials and manufacturing. But at that point, for some reason, it was just not connecting with me. And when I accidentally came across this tiny school that took just a dozen students across all of India and discovered it, what happened for me was I realized that this thing that I'd been following as a tinkerer, as a maker, as a drawing, was this confluence of these two things. I didn't have the language to say it then, but the confluence of two things, which was making things that had a human connection and making things that are creative. Really, the two centers of gravity of design, being human-centered and being innovative. And going to this school, it really gave me this opportunity. And, you know, at this point, this was a privilege to go to a design school in India at that point because... This was almost the very start of the design profession in India. The founders of design in India were my teachers. And so we were very, very early in the conversation where there was no difference between student and teacher. You know, we were learning together. And so it was just such a privilege to have started the journey in that way. And the one thing for me that it taught me, I think, is the whole idea of learning to learn. You know, and it served me very well at this particular moment in design when we're reinventing design altogether. And those same skills I learned as an 18-year-old who went to that school to want to design fast cars, uh, uh, but ended <laughs> up going, doing something entirely different, uh, served me well all these years later. Well, Surya, I want to go maybe even a little bit further back in time. You know, you've talked about being the 18-year-old, you know, wanting to design these fast cars, that you recognize that you were a, a maker in the past. I've also heard yourself describe as a curious person, which probably won't surprise anybody given the nature of what you do and the, the type of people that are listening to this podcast. What is it, though, that you ascribe this intense curiosity to? So before you even found design, what is your earliest memory or what is it in your background that mm -hmm. really created the environment for you to develop and think and, and act and make in the way in which you have? Oh my God, that's, that's just, that's a brilliant question. That's a brilliant question. I may not have asked quite a brilliant answer, but I'll poke at it a little bit. I remember some of my earliest memories of my designerliness or my tendency towards being this particular kind of human uh, who is a designer, right? this thing that we call design, this unusual thing that we call design, you know, for me, the core of design, of course, is that we're all creative. We're all creative and we all have something to offer. It kind of spurts out of us in different ways, but then enter stage left is this particular thing called design. And this is now systematic method by which we can take that raw human creativity and turn into results. So if I think back on my own childhood, I remember all of those notebooks in India, we used to call them exercise books. 
the notebooks that we uh, had, the front would begin with the homework I had to do assigned by my teachers. But from the back, I would be drawing pictures where I'd be continuously trying to refine the same picture over and over and over again. And typically what would happen is the uh, picture half of the notebook coming from the back would meet the homework half two-thirds of the way. So there's only be a third of the notebook left for the left of the homework. But I bring <laughs> it up because I think without having the language, without knowing what it was, and really to the consternation of my parents and my teachers and so on, what I was doing was really one of the core things that we do in design, experiment and iterate. And so for me, that early experience, that through this particular thing that we experiment and iterate and try and solve something, and that solving we use often in design, we use visuality, mm -hmm. right? And so those, if I think about were those uh, things. The other thing that I think as a young person, I think, you know, oftentimes the clues you get about yourself are what others notice about you. Yes. And uh, yeah. the things that people uh, noticed about me, whether it's my family, my friends, was that they appeared to be a, a quirky, a different way of thinking this guy had, right? Mm -hmm. There was something, those things that seemed to be taken for granted by most people as sort of just the nature of the built environment and the way we are. For some reason, something made me want to poke at that, whether it was door handles, whether it was toys, whatever it was. So there was this notion, and I think that is actually uh, closely connected with what I was doing in those drawings and scribblings, you know, the things that I, um, I was constantly getting messages of, you know, you're really wasting your time doing that. The productive work starts in the beginning of the notebook, so for me, those were the interesting. I also, in uh, when I was in school, I uh, remember I was winning the art prizes. So for a while, I thought, maybe I'm mm -hmm. an artist. But then again, being a middle-class Indian, being an artist is a hobby. It's mm -hmm. not a vocation. So it is certainly not something that pointed forwards towards sort of a livelihood, you know, and sort of a, a vocation where you'd make income. Right. Now that's that's interesting. That's interesting because you mentioned engineering when we first started talking, right. and how that you you hadn't yet discovered design, and engineering wasn't really firing for you at that stage of life. You also mentioned just just a second ago that in pursuing you know the artistic uh, endeavors in your textbooks, you were you were told that you were wasting your time. Now this is symptomatic of a education culture, an industrialized culture that clearly seems to value engineering over design. If you look at the weighting in terms of designers mm -hmm. to engineers, even in tech and product, there's probably some other, you know, really complicate, complicated and good reasons for that as well. But what was it within you that you listened to that input from the world, whether it was from people like teachers or parents, I'm not sure, you, you tell me, but mm -hmm. what was it that you had within you that you decided to ignore that and carve your own path? So for me, the answer is a very interesting one. I studied engineering at a college uh, in a place called Chandigarh. This college, Chandigarh is a city which incidentally is designed by Le Corbusier. It's an entire uh -huh. city. Back in the 60s, the prime minister of India then, 
Jawaharlal Nehru, who was sort of a modernist and was very keen to take put this post-colonial country that had sort of had been at a standstill almost for about, you know, uh, several hundred years where it hadn't actually progressed in terms of its own modernity. And he wanted to bring in influences of modernity in different ways to the country. And mm -hmm. one of those things that he did was to invite the person he thought was the preeminent architect in the world, Corbusier, to come and design an entire city. So do the master plan of the city and, you know, some of the significant buildings and so on. Just a small job, so right? I know, just a small job. And, you know, and so, of course, you know, there's a, uh, I could go on about this city. And the city was a modernist city, which divided into, I think it was 42 sectors. They were called sectors. Each sector mm -hmm. had a number. And we lived in sector 34. Each sector was divided into four parts, A, B, C, D. We lived in sector 34D. So kind of dystopian. In, uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, it sounds like something out yeah. of some sort of so so Soviet dystopian I know, uh, um, it is, right. fiction. Yeah, exactly. And the college that I went to was in Sector 11B. But in this college, in the section of the engineering school, which also was Section E, so you can see this is fractal, <laughs> layers upon layers, had a window. And that window, when... Uh, I was having trouble going through my classes in differential calculus and uh, everything. I was trying to figure out what, this is very interesting things, but I don't see how this connects with real life. Mm -hmm. And I remember I'd look out of this window and outside this window was this building, this colorful, heroic building, a Corbusier building of the state capital, because this is also the capital of the state. And I remember that building got me more and more curious about, you know, why did this building take this unusual shape, almost like this bird with wings? It had orange and red columns and it had this, you know, this very unique shapes. And so that drew me to go investigate, how did this building come to be this? It looked different mm -hmm. from every other building. And, um, and there began a journey to understand because there was a room where there was some of the models that uh, Corbusier had made. And it was like seeing a mirror of myself, exactly those things that I'd been doing in my notebooks. Here was this famous person who actually built this huge building out of concrete, but it's sort of in his notebooks, he'd been making these little drawings and pictures that didn't look that different from mine. And this <laughs> was a real profession. People actually did this. This was not that these things didn't come as a hobby. Rich people didn't do this as a hobby. There's actually people who did this for a living. And so there started a really investigation. Okay, so there was something called architecture. And so there was one school which also taught architecture. And so I went down the rabbit hole saying, so how do I get into that school? And then it turned out that by sheer luck, that school was in the same city. Ahmedabad, that the design school was in. And by sheer luck, my dad happened to notice an advertisement on page 16 of the Indian Express in Ooh, one lucky. corner saying, 
there is this thing called design school accepting applications. And my dad was, a, uh, he's in the military. And, um, you know, his experience of me, watching me grow up and what he did, he got this um, spidey sense that this son of his was onto something. It is different from what he, he was doing, but it's different. At some point he was telling me, you know, those things we see, those Disney cartoons, I think you are meant to be doing things like that, mm -hmm. right? Now there's also the vexing problem. How do you reconcile that with having a vocation and having a profession and, you know, all of those kinds of things. But he saw them and said, you should really look into that. And so I did, I looked at that ad and I knew it. I finally knew it. Okay, there it is. I knew it was there. I always knew this existed and there it was. And so I, even before, I knew there's only like a, and there were about 20 places that year and in that school. But look at the ad, I just knew that's me. And there opens a new chapter in my life. I just had this great sense of certainty and that's how that came to be. But it was, uh, thank you to the boring differential calculus textbook <laughs> and that window. Uh, which led me through this particular unique journey. Now, when I say it, I think people who have this sensation that I'm describing, that I discovered this thing called design, and this, this is so special and unique to me because now something very interesting has happened to me in my life. We tend to construct the world as there is this thing called work, mm -hmm. and the work thing is a thing that you do to make money, and then there's this other thing about the things that you enjoy. And you use the work thing to make money to do the things you enjoy. And there is, when people discover design and they have this feeling, they say, how can this possibly be true? Yes. That this same thing that I truly enjoy doing so much is also this thing that is a profession and it's work. And it's that moment where, there, you know, it's a very, I think it's a very deep, awakening almost recognize that there is your you don't have to operate your life as sort of fragmented into these two parts they come together as one and you know and for me that has you know that's why i say luckiest thing that happened to me and i know i'm not unique in that a lot of people have that experience and that has um, continued through all these years that same sensation of uh, I mean, every week I think, oh, so lucky to be a designer. So lucky. You feel like you might be hiding something sometimes. You're like, it can't be. It is good. It's really good. Do other people know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just know. want to come back to the to your dad, though. I mean, that is, I know that's just a small snippet into what life was like for you and your relationship there with your father. I mean, someone who came from mm -hmm. a military background and, and which is obviously a fairly disciplined pursuit in terms of a career. But that belief, the belief of a parent and a child when they can see that the world around them isn't suited to where they want to go, what a special thing. It is. And, you know, I'm, I'm really loving our conversation because this is worth looking at because, again, it comes back to this core idea. So my dad, uh, uh, you know, was in the military for a long time, became a brigadier general, was successful, did all the kinds of things in the military, but an mm -hmm. incredibly inventive person. There's always things that he do even within the structure of the military 
that he do in these very clever, creative ways. And he was known for his kindness and he's also known for his creativity. So this thing called creativity, although, you know, we are designers, you know, we're talking in a um, conversation that's about design, which may be listened to by a lot of folks in design, but we don't have a corner on creativity. Yeah. You know, yeah. there, every human being is creative. We were fortunate enough to get the formula to be able to be repeatedly be creative on demand. Wake me up at 2 a.m. in the morning and tell me to be creative. I can be creative because I love <laughs> the secret formula called design process. Right. But everybody <laughs> is creative. Right. Most humans don't get a chance to really turn that into value, into social value. They might turn it into certain value in their own lives, such as the way maybe they arrange their forks and spoons, the curtains they pick for their homes or, you know, the, the way they decorate their desks. Right. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, broad social value for everybody, that requires this kind of rigorous process, the one that we are so fortunate to be trained in. I've heard you describe your mission, Surya, as, and I'm going to quote you now, to unleash the design thinker in every person to become a value creator. And I believe this is underpinned by a belief that you hold, which is that all lives are created equal. And you've sort of touched on just before um, how you believe every person is innately creative, which is what you've just been talking about. Right. Why is it? Why, why do you in particular want or have this need to unleash design thinking for everyone? And what does it mean for people to be value creators as they go through that process? You know, this is, this is something I, I do ask myself because if I look at my own journey as a designer, right? So my own journey has been a lot about exploring my own creative self, creating these products first versus industrial designs, you know, mm -hmm. uh, create form giving, creating these uh, products made of uh, injection molded plastic and glass and metal for automotive industry and for consumer product and all of these various kind of products, right? And mm -hmm. I was fortunate these products did well. I got uh, recognized and, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was great to have that career as an industrial designer to do that. And at some point I shifted to the world of digital and, uh, you know, and for me, the shift was actually honestly not that great. It meant learning a new craft. Uh, yeah, this, hang on, I want, to, I want to just tell people a bit of context here, because what people yes. might not have picked up, and I didn't include it in your introduction, is that you were a tenured professor and you decided to leave tenure behind and completely, and this is a hugely brave, brave act, completely change design discipline. So I just wanted to give people that extra context. So it wasn't wasn't like you were sort of fresh out of university and, and walking into this industry. You made a conscious decision to leave academia behind. I did. And, you know, uh, and maybe we'll come back to it. I have, uh, in some ways, it has turned out not to be leaving it behind, but uh, in a sense, changing my relationship with academia in a different way. But, uh, you know, we uh -huh. can uh, come back to that, I'm, I'm sure. So the shift from the physical product to digital product, right? Uh, for me, that was a 
uh, it'll simply change the material, moving from plastic and metal and glass to algorithms and data and pixels and so on. The process remains somewhat the same. And the process actually remains the same, right? The craft itself did change. So mm -hmm. there was a part where I went through the journey of being a maker in the physical world and then a maker in the digital world. But one of the things that I've noticed within myself um, is, and we are drawn to different things, you know, all of us. And one of the things that uh, uh, seems to bring me joy and satisfaction is to coach and lead and help and teach and all of those things, which is what led me to uh, being a professor, which I did for seven years. And mm -hmm. I continue to teach. And then when I, wo I was working in corporate, I would do a lot of that uh, in my own teams. And then that mission expanded to actually doing that for the entire uh, company, in this case, Microsoft, of leading and coaching. So in some sense, there has been this thread uh, that has been running through, which is this one, making and unleashing my own creative self, and then getting a lot of satisfaction and pleasure of unleashing that from others, of that with others as well. So at just at a very emotional level, that brings joy to mm. do that. Now, I also, when I, you know, whether it is um, uh, being a manager of large teams, being a, um, a teacher, being a coach and so on, one of the things that I think I kind of, feel is a waste is when somebody's innate creative capabilities don't get to flourish. They don't actually, they're capable of so much, but they miss a piece. And so they're not able to actually take it and turn that into something that sticks, mm -hmm. something that actually gets realized in the world. And so for me, you know, what I've learned through teaching of uh, being an instructional designer of uh, uh, I went deep into human performance technology at some point to really understand what, uh, you know, how humans tick and, you know, uh, how to motivate and get that out and uh, people to understand behaviors and understanding uh, how you actually shape those. So for me, this whole notion of, uh, uh, this mission of unleashing the design thinker of any in everyone to be a value creator is also a design project. It's a design project and I approach it in very visual ways. I approach it in very experimental ways. I always begin in empathic ways, right? So it is not about, let's say, giving up designing myself and teaching others to design. This is my most challenging, most interesting design project that I've ever done. It goes to show that you can be both generous and selfish at the same time. I think so. I think so. Mm. I really do think so. I think, you know, again, this gets to some of the categories we create in the world, right? Of, um, are you going to pursue a path of profit or purpose? No, you, I think, you know, mm -hmm. you can actually, you can, there is room, there's plenty of room in a complex, complicated world, so much in need 
of uh, tending to, of regenerating. You can follow, uh, create career paths, life paths that bring together passion, purpose, and profit. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the, those are pull away in different ways. You know, I try to remember uh, Victor Papanek and his book, Design for the Real World, which is more than 50 years old now, but I keep going back to it. But he begins mm. that uh, book by talking about sort of the dark path that design can take, right? I think he starts mm. by saying, you know, um, marketing's the most dangerous profession, but design is the second most dangerous profession uh, by creating grown-up men and women, creating idiotic things that nobody needs and sell them sell them to them by tricking them into wanting them right so that's the dark path mm. right which i think uh, has lost purpose and just has followed only that profit motive but i think there's plenty of room really as you so uh, wonderfully said uh, there is a lot of room to be generous and to do the right thing uh, for yourself and for others yeah, and if we've been guilty of anything in recent times and generalizing here about humanity, it's being too binary in our thinking, which can lead to some fairly uh, abhorrent behaviors and also some unhelpful ways of framing the world as individuals and the choices that we make. I, I want to come back to this word that you used in your mission, Surya, if I may, mm-hmm. unleashed. Yes. And why I want to focus on that word is there's a converse to that word, which is leashed. So if we need to unleash people to realize they're in a design thinker and really realize that creativity, what is it? It may be more than one thing, but what is it that is keeping us leashed? So I think the word that comes up for me right away is courage. And I think a lot about creative courage. When I teach design, I try to teach creative courage right? And taking risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, kind of, truly, you know, without being cliche, being joyful with failure. And I think a lot of that is really these, you know, we talked about earlier in our conversation, these kind of constructs we have in the world, work mm-hmm. and play, profit and purpose, right? These things are framed as an opposition to each other, Right? Similarly, the whole idea of, yes, I want to go do this hard job that I hate doing, and then I'll go back at home, but in one corner of my garage, I have my easel and my paints, and I'm learning a watercolor class on YouTube, and that's where I will unleash my creativity. While the need of the moment and the opportunity of the moment is really to take that creative self and unleash it on the million problems that we have in the world right now. Yeah, we've got a few, don't we? We do, right? We have, and you know, and yeah, we have millions of problems on planet Earth and our societies, but we have 8 billion humans. That's 8 billion creative minds, right? Mm. So that's a lot of creative minds. So, you know, you asked me earlier, what draws me to this? It's, I think today the biggest waste that we have on the planet within every organization is this creative capital 
that doesn't get used and instead gets locked into people who are not happy in what they do. You know, and we with humans, a lot of humans doing jobs that machines do and not be able to do those things that humans do well, which is their creativity. Yeah. And if there was ever a, a worthy design challenge, it, it would be to free humans from menial labor. And I, I mean, I don't know enough about the trajectory that we're on, but it certainly seems with automation that that's coming. I know some people have some fears about job displacement as a result yeah. of technology. And that's, again, not something that I'm really qualified to speak on. So I want to just dive into something slightly different. And happy to come back to that if you'd like to, though. So with very, very good reason at this moment in time, we should be wary of technology. We should be wary of some of these technologies that have become so surveillant, right? Mm. Uh, technology that tends to, even though I said humans uh, doing jobs machines should do, the people being displaced from their livelihood. So there's a lot of ferment. There's a lot of stuff that is not going right. The potential exists if we get really smart to use these technologies in ways that are aligned to the creativity of humans. If the mission is to help everyone lead that rich, creative life that provides value for themselves and provides value for the planet, provides value to the future, and if that's the mission we are in service of, then these very same technologies, if we can get really smart, we can start to utilize them. You know, here's here as part of Design Swarms is a kind of a, it's a little bit in the future, but a pet project mm -hmm. that I am beginning to work on is the whole idea of blockchain has the possibility of really being this marvelous technology. Because uh, today, it turns out we don't have a way to really, if somebody comes up with a really smart idea, and unless that person happens to sit with a large corporation where they can uh, pay all the money to apply for patents and so on, mm -hmm. they don't get the reward for their efforts, to, for that creativity. But if we start to think about these kind of ledgers, which are able to be able to clarify who owns certain intellectual property, the right way of framing this technology could be that everyone I think of, you know, the farmer in the rice field in Indonesia who comes up with a great idea right, can then be the owner of that idea, right? And that would be the right mm. framing of this technology to use these technologies in the service of creativity, in the service of humans, rather than the service only of very large tech businesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well it, well, it brings me to a question about incentives. So do we have a, an industry that is incentivized to prioritize, at least to some degree, maybe not equally, serving humanity. And again, this is a bit of a loose concept, and yeah. not very well defined, but the greater good over and above profit. So are we currently getting the outcomes that we deserve based on the constraints and, uh, and ways in which we've currently designed our, our system of commerce? I'm finding that I'm personally through authentic, spending more and more time uh, with clients who are in the wellness business, in the mm -hmm. well-being business, you know, 
I mean, today, what we call healthcare is evolving into well-being, right? And this is, you know, it's driven by a profit motive, but it's also driven by an uh, upswell in this concern across the planet. And maybe one of the things we will end up saying, thank you, pandemic, is because it brought us back to recognizing that's the most important thing, right? Well-being, right? So it's been a catalyst to move it forward. So if I think that there is, I don't think it's happening yet, but I think the opportunity exists in that space, in the wellness or well-being industry for um, that kind of right alignment to take place. Mm. Well, let's turn the, the lens now back to design as a profession. And that hopefully this will make sense in a second. So I was watching recently a, a video um, by Kareem Rashid, who I believe is a, a famous designer in, mm -hmm. in terms of interior and, and product. And he was complaining about the democratization of design and the impact that that is having on his ability to maintain a price premium in the marketplace. And I couldn't help but listen to this video and imagine that was what the Catholic Church was complaining about when the great unwashed Protestants started printing and reading Bibles on their own. It was it just sort of seemed to me to come from a place of of incredible privilege and it was quite myopic in its view as to the increase or influx of designers into the marketplace over the last 20 to 30 years. So my question for you is, from your perspective, is design thinking and other associated ways of democratizing design, is it helping design or is it harming design as a profession? In my view, there's a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, I think it's a very, very positive thing if we end up with a planet with 8 billion designers. I see nothing wrong with that, right? If we can say that everybody gets a chance to be a designer, right? That would mm. that'd be a wonderful thing, right? Why not? Now, another thread through this is, of course, design is hot. Design's sizzling hot right now. Yeah. And there is a lot of careers to be made by putting the word design on your business card mm -hmm. right? without really having studied or practiced design, right? And right. I think there's room for that as well, right? Uh, there is a room for that in the sense, uh, you know, this is, of course, the interesting thing, interesting distinction between design thinking and design doing. There's plenty of room for a lot of doers as long as you don't mix up these two things. Design mm. thinking is a very sophisticated, highly skilled, uh, highly skilled way of thinking. It takes thousands of hours to master this. There is the yes. matter of getting the skills at tools, which does not require as much of the sophistication. That goes into doing. Now, these two have got all jumbled up. Right. And because design has emerged so quickly as becoming, in many cases, the differentiator, because there's so many folks gravitating to it and because there's so many schools and workshops that 
claim to turn you into particularly a UX designer in two weeks or three, yes. three months and so on. <laughs> so there we see this problem of sort of the commodification of really a very, very sophisticated science. There is a problem. And, you know, I think uh, there are different ways one could look at that, you know, from a parochial lens, one could say, you know, this was my thing. You're encroaching on my territory, right? Mm. And you're doing this. And, you know, we uh, there's, of course, a lot of that uh, uh, conversation that happens with, you know, it's like, get your logo done for $5 on Fiverr. Yeah. Right? And uh, it uh, dilutes what it takes to create a brand and so uh, and all of that, right? So there is that challenge, right? But, of course, all of that's happening because we are in the thick of this moment where design has just very suddenly arrived to the center, right? I don't know if you know uh, the model that uh, Sabine Junginger, Professor Sabine Junginger, well, I think when she was at uh, um, the University of Lancaster, I think she created this beautiful model of sort of the four stages of design maturity. And she described them as sort of four bubbles. And the first bubble, she's got, you know, there are organizations and then there is something sitting outside called design, a little dot. And that's mm-hmm. stage one, design as a satellite activity. Stage two is there is the organization and that little dot has moved here into this design as a peer to many other functions that are taking place. And then the stage three and that dots in the center now, design as core to the organization. And stage four, where this entire shape is designed. So the four stages. Now what's happened is there's a bunch of places in the world that have seen successes of uh, Apple and Airbnb and Nike and a bunch of places and they want that design thing, but they don't understand what it is, right? <laughs> and so there's, and so there is this comp, this, uh, uh, we are in this time where there's a lot of folks who will lay claim, but I am the expert in that without actually having capabilities to do that. So, you know, I see that as part of what's taking place in this time. It'll settle out, right? But we are in the thick of it right now. I don't know if that answers your question at all. Well, it leads to another question. So I've recently been thinking about the role of qualifications and standards. Now, I think it's pretty clear that you can go to university, you can earn an undergraduate degree, you can do postgraduate degrees, you can do a PhD in design. So those are clearly signifiers and they communicate a a level of depth and understanding uh, of a field and they're no doubt important. But you mentioned the rise of, you know, the boot camps and UX um, courses that promise the world within three to six months and the inability of the marketplace to seemingly determine between quality design candidates and, and, and people that may not be as high quality that are still on their journey somewhere in that, uh, on that mountain. What is the role? What role, particularly for product design, so digital in particular, you know, it seems like architecture and, mm-hmm. and, and other related schools have quite well-established and longer track records in terms of how they credential their designers. But what role, if any, do we need at the moment in digital product uh, for some clarity and alignment on what it looks like and what it means to be a great designer? So I think this is two, the two places where this question is being teased out, I think, 
it turns out that I've had a lens into both of these at this particular moment, and I've been involved. Mm-hmm. One is, of course, the whole accreditation process of what are programs that can offer these things called degrees, the things that give you the, you know, uh, the stamp that says you are a designer. Yes, we don't have licenses in design. I don't have a strong opinion on that, um, but there's accreditation bodies that say, okay, you know, there's a bunch of uh, mostly for-profit uh, schools that tend to be much more vocational around, around design, and they tend to be like I call the design doing. And mm-hmm. then there are the other university and design school uh, education that's a broader education that's around design thinking and doing. And both. So it's being teased out, I think, in the accreditation place. So I get to be part of a bunch of these bodies just looking, you know, okay, is this design training or design education, right? So there's there's a place for training and there's, somebody's got to make the icons, right? Somebody mm-hmm. has to make the layouts, right? They may, may not have the skills to actually go understand real needs and the scenario and the experience outcomes and do all that. But, you know, so in that case, there's a certain place for training. The other place that gets teased out outside of academia and accreditation is in what I uh, what I work with the, a bunch of companies on uh, figuring out what is their own uh, laddering system of designers within organizations. What are career right. journeys of designers, right? So it's it's okay to actually come in at a junior level from one of these boot campy places, right? where you have certain skills of the Adobe suite, you know, uh, using Figma and so on. And there's clarity that those are certain skills that are a certain level of the the ladder. And from there, just because education itself has changed, we learn from YouTube and we learn from Khan Academy and we learn from Instagram and we learn from our learning. Learning has changed, right? We don't have to learn exactly the same way we learn in the 20th centuries, our learning can be very different, right? Uh, but still, if there's clarity that you can start at a certain place in the career, and then as you grow in sophistication and you understanding your practice and you get your 10,000 hours of practicing and, you know, interviewing and whatever those things that you're doing the track that you're on, you grow within that. So I guess my thinking is we may not, I don't know if it serves us only to think about this using the structures that we know from other disciplines that actually did that in the 19th and 20th century to, you know, like architecture to make sure, and they need to have licenses to make sure that buildings go, don't go tumbling down. That's where it came from, right? Mm-hmm. There's a case we made that we need licenses so that Cambridge Analytica doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, right? But there may be other structures, Right within organizations that are needed, but I these are I think these are the two places that I'm involved in in terms of just clarifying. So you know, for those practitioners like Kareem that are feeling the hordes of hungry graduates and 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 people that have entered the field in recent years, um, you know, breathing down their necks, so to speak, what is the opportunity that actually they're failing currently to see? that lies ahead of them to take or improve or do something different with their career and to shed that 
anxiety that they might be feeling now? I can really reflect on my own career and what I do. So if I reflect on my own career, there was a time when I was in design school, I was learning at this furious pace. And I learned about design throughout, then I practiced, and then I went through a certain learning point. Now, after having been a designer for almost three decades, I am back to that same feverish pace of learning. I think what also changed was the contract with learning. Our old contract with learning was you go to these places called design schools, university, what are the disciplines? And then you go invest in yourself and then you do a whole bunch of learning. And then you go out and spend the rest of your life using that learning in your career. I think that has shifted. Now we are in the business. I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, but lifelong learning. Mm. But it's real now. I find myself a certain level of my own knowledge gets obsolete every 18 to 36 months. My core understanding of design remains pretty resilient. Sort of if you think about a river, the deeper current of the river continues to be, you know, rock solid. But there's new things that are coming, whether it is happening in the world of technology, whether it's happening in the world in society, whether it's happening in ethics, whether it's happening in inclusion, whether it's happening in the way we view gender, the way we do all that. I have to keep learning and refreshing and think about what does that mean? to my practice as a designer. And my practice changes constantly. And my practice, if I look at it, was when I was learning as a student, was changing dramatically. And then for a long time, it didn't change that dramatically, but it's back to really changing dramatically. And for me, again, reflecting again to your, on your question, what should a seasoned sort of design star be doing at this point? And my own answer to that, I have new coaches. A, mm. a bunch of them who are in their 20s, right? Mm. And so I'm investing into learning in much bigger ways, knowing that whatever I have learned and whatever has made me successful in the past is not going to serve me going forward. And it's actually a lot of fun, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting time to, to learn as well. And the platforms for learning are so accessible. So learning, that's what, it, you know, and, you know, the reference that I would share, of course, is uh, Carol Dweck's book on growth hacking, the growth mm-hmm. mindset. You know, I think that uh, that's really been a pretty powerful book for me. Yeah, it's an ex- it's an excellent book, actually. If you yeah. haven't picked it up, people definitely go and pick it up and have a read. I couldn't help but think that it was such a humbling thing to do for you to you know, you're, you, you know, you are a very successful designer. I mean, I don't need to go back through your introduction and the other things that you've done again, but to actually take on a coach or coaches that are in their 20s is not a typical way that people think about how that relationship between younger and older should be framed, particularly when it comes to someone who's accomplished things in design. And I just think that that's such a refreshing take on a two-way transfer of value um, and I hadn't I haven't really heard of anyone else doing that I'm not suggesting people aren't doing that but yeah. wow what a what a great thing to do and I'm sure they're learning things from you as well I can share my my specific practice 
I have an Excel spreadsheet, which is called my 100 teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And every year I, I update that and the learning, uh, and there's more and more young people doing extraordinary things that I wouldn't have done, right? And that mm -hmm. I'm so curious about. And uh, what I try to do is maybe have two or three conversations in a year with them. I find it extraordinary. I think one of the beauties and the benefits of having, you know, a sort of a reasonably uh, long, somewhat successful career is you feel the ground fairly firm beneath your feet. Anything new that's coming, it's only going to serve me. Right. And so mm -hmm. I, uh, so this is a practice that, you know, I started about five or six years ago has really served me well just to have it, you know, and it's just two or three 30 minute conversation. I learned so much. Yeah. That's so important. That's a really good message. I, I feel it's, it's definitely something you've made me think about how I might be able to do, do something similar in my practice. Surya, you talked about inclusivity briefly. You just briefly mentioned that word not that long ago in our conversation. And I want to come to that because mm -hmm. I believe while you're at Microsoft, that was inclusive design was something that you were a huge proponent of. And I'll quote you now. You've said, when we design for extreme cases, we actually end up serving everybody. There's no such thing as a normal human. So it sounds like what you're saying is that we shouldn't be designing our products and services for most people. We should be designing them for all people. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this, uh, honestly, I have to, one, um, this is not by any means an original thought. You know, there's universal designs been preaching this forever. What has happened is universal, the ethos of universal design has found itself into the digital world as inclusive design and has extended that, extended mm -hmm. that, right? So, but why I think this particular, why inclusion, obviously, if one is committed to a democratic ideal that everybody should have the benefits equitably of what we create as designers, you know, we have to think about inclusion. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is in our times, we have gone from products that, you know, when, when I've designed products as an industrial designer in the past, sometimes I've designed products that maybe a hundred thousand users would use because designs are making of multiples of the same thing, right? There were a hundred thousand toasters that were made, a hundred thousand people. But as I worked in um, uh, companies like Microsoft, the decisions that I'm making are being used by a billion or two billion people. So now, of course, the challenge of how you design the one thing that at least serves so many people who by definition are very diverse. So inclusion comes to the forefront really now. How do we mm -hmm. make sure that this thing we create actually fits everybody? And the way to do that really, I believe, is that we, if we can understand in what we are creating, we can answer the question of who gets excluded. 
Do you get excluded because you're older? Do you get excluded because you have a physical impairment of some kind? Do you get excluded because you're rural? Do you get excluded because you don't know a certain language? The moment we create something, we exclude people. But if we start with that question about who is getting excluded, and then we get really smart in terms of thinking about how we think about who is who are all getting excluded, and we design so that those folks don't get excluded, you end up creating products that even when you're designing for a billion people, everybody gets included, right? There's a more nuance to this with digital products, given that, you know, these are services very often and it's not exactly the same uh, product for everyone. But that question really starting with understanding who gets excluded really changes how we design. That's an uncomfortable question, I imagine, for quite a few people to think about. For at least my own experience, a lot of the organizations and people are getting better at now organizations are more mindful of this now but it wasn't really something or a question that was ever asked before and accessibility and inclusive design was almost like a line item in a budget somewhere if if at all there was a feature in fact uh, you're absolutely right absolutely right and in fact the bulk of the work uh, really that uh, we do with authentic is really around inclusion these days. And there is something that I've created called the inclusive design process map. That's a systematic way to actually start thinking about these questions. There's a construct called the iceberg of exclusion to allow a very systematic way to understand what are all the ways that people get excluded. And my experience of it when um, I teach this. We go uh, work with you know small startups and large organizations, and we run through projects using the inclusive design, uh, process map, which is a, which also uses the design swarm approach. Is actually quite the opposite of feeling constrained. People feel liberated when people get that buzz where they feel that they are doing something worthwhile. And they, uh, it's, again, one of those things, you know, we've talked about these places where dualities come together. It's one of, those, one of those places where when you design something that's inclusive, two things happen. One is, of course, you're doing things that everybody gets a benefit of. Yes, yes. The other mm-hmm. thing is because we're all, as businesses, struggling with how to serve diverse markets. Now you get the key to be able to actually go have a thriving business in a diverse market. So both of those come together. So I find that, you know, this is very, very galvanizing for organizations. And for any lawyers that might be listening, any in, in-house counsel, you're probably going to be less likely to get sued as well. So it works as Absolutely. far as risk <laughs> mitigation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or get to the markets. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I want to, take this thread of inclusivity and design and talk about a design swarm project that you are involved with. I believe that you led actually, which is one in Seattle. And it was a project that aimed to help the city's homeless, in this case, the the women that were homeless in Seattle, escape Mm -hmm. domestic violence. Yeah. Now you said, and I'll quote you again here, they, 
when you're referring to homeless woman may not have known the design thinking process, but they knew their lives very well. Now, why I want to talk, talk to you about this is that design thinking of which design swarms is a, um, as a methodology on top of, or it's, it's a complementary way of using design thinking is sometimes used as a way, and I'm not saying design swarms are here, I just wanna be very clear about that, but design thinking is sometimes used as an expedient way of generating solutions without actually including the people for whom those solutions are for, which is a criticism, right, of design thinking. What role, what role and how critical or not critical at all is it to actually involve the people you're seeking to serve in design thinking through a methodology like design swarms? Yeah, so in the particular project we're looking at, Seattle had uh, the very shameful distinction uh, some years ago of having over 500 homeless women on Mm. the streets, enough that the mayor had declared it a citywide emergency. And there is a a spectacular uh, organization uh, and a shelter called Mary's Place in Seattle, who've been doing really very, very good work to take on this crisis. And so this partnership was with the folks at Mary's Place. And it was bringing some designers, some business folks, some technologists, working with the folks who had experienced homelessness who at Mary's place. Now, I think one of the challenges of smart people and smart designers, we can often think, yeah, you know, I could probably imagine what the life of a homeless person is. Tell me a little bit about it. I can probably stretch and understand that, right? So. One of the things that becomes very clear when you're working in a co-creation framework, right, is you realize that you actually can't understand it at that depth. So there's a lot of power in in co-creation, especially when you're in a resource poor situation and very quickly need to be able to understand and start to solve things. So so there is a notion of co-creation. In this particular case, There were a number of epiphanies. One of them, uh, which was the most powerful one, was very quickly in the project, it became clear that the challenge of homelessness among women was not simply about not having a roof, a woman not having a roof over her head when she became homeless. The challenge was had a, a different level of nuance, which was how a woman becomes homeless. Oftentimes that's preceded by a lot of awful things happening in a household. There's violence, there is, you know, all kinds of bad things happening. And which sometimes precipitates with a woman having to flee. And sometimes that happens in the middle of the night. And when she does that, oftentimes it is when all of her identity documents, you know, are withheld from her and she just fled. So she's out on the streets, but she has no way to identify herself. Mm. And just given the nature of shelter, so that is one of the prerequisites 
that you need to be able to get into a shelter, you know? And so mm-hmm. that was, you know, understanding the brittleness of the system that came from lived experiences. And the solution, once one has got that insight, then coming up with solutions rather simple. You know, it ended up being a cloud-based service and the, a way that a um, woman at risk could proactively upload documentation to the cloud and access it as needed and so on. So that that became the trajectory of the solution. But mm. that particular key came from lived experience. And that's where that co-creation became really powerful, right? And so whether it is working with refugee communities, working with folks suffering from opioid addiction or in less, um, you know, dramatic, severe uh, cases, working with uh, the uh, impact on Seattle downtown from uh, COVID and printing down. This notion of actually bringing people whose lives are directly impacted and who have lived experiences, but who may not be designers, who are not designers, and moving them to a designery process, being coached and helped with folks who are more familiar with design has proved to be a successful um, uh, approach. So here I'm really talking about the notion of co-creation and using Mm -hmm. this particular framework of design swarms for co-creation was probably worth saying a little bit about design swarms and how that fits into it, right? The notion of design swarms is, uh, you know, for me, I had the opportunity, um, you know, at Microsoft and other places to, you know, while I've been teaching design and helping uh, organizations take a designerly uh, approach to doing things. There's some, another thread that's also been going through where I've been noticing organizations that are performant versus organizations that are less performant. And one of the patterns that I've noticed is that when they're complex problems, the kind of organizations that seem to create successful results that stick and be able to do that quickly are less often the top-down command and control kind of organizations. But it's when teams get the opportunity to be more nimble, to behave like ant farms, to have autonomy, to be self-organizing. You know, I like to liken this, you know, when they're able to move in concert like a shoal of fish, they seem to get things done fast. And organizations that have adopted this notion of swarming on problems and have managed to instrument that in one way or the other. It's been, you know, instrumented in some ways in software programming, this notion, some of these uh, ideas. So what design swarms are really is bringing together design thinking and this notion of multiple teams concurrently working on a problem, on the same problem, and those teams made up of folks who have come from different disciplines and requiring none of them to know design, but using very prescriptive process maps where each team has a set of these process maps and they work through a process. But as they're going through that, by choreographing what I call the swarm dynamics, where the teams, they are quickly 
learning design situationally, just what they need to do the next step, but then also looking sideways to see what other teams have done and learning from each other and mm. learning from the lived knowledge that lives within the room. Uh, well, in sometimes the physical room, but these days it's uh, happening on our digital whiteboards and being run across continents. That is in the core, the idea of design swarms, that there is a way that the design thinking process is made visible and simplified and teams are able to go through that journey, the journey of traversing what I call problem space and after tra mm -hmm. traversing problem space, traversing solution space and do that as a team, but also watch other teams do that and learn from each other and in this way, swarm on a problem together. So that's the idea of the design swarm. It's sort of like, you know, it's akin to a sprint, but it's a little bit different from a sprint, given that there are multiple teams working concurrently and that they all work in the same problem and they, are, uh, they tend to move through the entire process and tends to be, you know, 20, 30, um, uh, up to about 300 people at the same time. I haven't been through a design swarm myself, but I do having been through a lot of design thinking exercises and sprints and, and other things, um, have the sense that design thinking doesn't, or the experience that design thinking doesn't particularly leave a lot of time for thinking outside of the group context. And why I wanted to raise this with you is I was interested on your perspectives about the, sometimes the pressure cooked environment that design exercises can construct around them and the conditions that they place the people who are within the exercise in, some of which may not be, you know, incredibly extroverted and and or not light enough to think on their feet to the degree and the intensity that the processes may require. So how do we or how does design swarms or how should we be thinking about making space for people that uh, may just think differently or people that are neurodiverse and may not feel the, um, the drive to participate in these activities in the same way as potentially most people do? For me, uh, I, I can't claim to have like the final answer there, but I can tell you what, what I have been experimenting with for some years and I found quite successful. One is of course a setup. I form the teams for design swarms very carefully and intentionally, uh, understand participants and really sort of try to keep the thrill and the joy of that journey alive through that, right? And also through the orchestration, because it's very much orchestration, right? It is. It needs to be orchestrated that you're very aware of what rises up emotionally for people in these exercises. I mean, one of the very natural things that happens and which one has to design for is this, I talked earlier about creative courage, right? When we mm -hmm. go into design, that's one of the things we're learning we get skilled and we learn this thing called creative courage and that we are, we get quite comfortable spending huge amounts of time without a clue <laughs> that there's anything going to come out of the other end. Right. But because we've done it enough times, we know a feeling in the stomach that, you know, it's okay to sit with this uncertainty for a while because eventually it turns out as long as you follow the process, something will come. 
But we don't tell our business stakeholders that, do we? No, it's not. It's a very alien feeling for folks, right? (laughs) It's a very, so a lot of emotions come up, right? So in design swarms, I'll often use techniques from meditation, you Mm -hmm. know, use music and various things. But one has to be aware of uh, uh, what's happening emotionally in a room and, you know, the different, uh, also the social dynamics that are taking place. So, you know, again, uh, like I said, I don't have the final answer, but I think it's a very juicy place to recognize these are not just cogs in a machine that come in. These are human beings and human beings who come in with that great creative capacity, but they're human beings and the orchestration of uh, these times when we create these bursts of creativity to come up with incredible results, you have to very carefully create very, very safe places, very, very joyful Mm. places for this to happen, right? Yeah, there can can be a tendency for us to apply process like some sort of rote exercise. And I I really love what you're saying about how mindful you are about the design of the swarm itself and managing the the fluffier side of what it means to be a human and Absolutely. how that how that differs for people as they go through the swarm exactly and hopefully you know uh, i teach facilitation and one of the things that i always teach is if you're not intensely curious and wanting to learn through a process that's worth paying attention to it's just like that spreadsheet you going into any of these things you have to be super curious you know, you've got to be learning as well because you've got so many minds who can teach you, even if you orchestrate and, you know, create the space for it, hold the time and space for it. There is a lot of things that people can teach you and uh, going into that attitude makes a big difference for me. Surya, you've spoken in the past about how we, the people who work in product design technology, are in such a privileged position to shape the lives of so many other people. Specifically, you've said, what do we do with this awesome power? Because Mm -hmm. there's 7 billion people on the planet, each of them is unique, but there's only a very tiny percentage of people making the decisions for everybody. And we're starting to see some of the problems with that. So for my final question for our wonderful conversation today, what are the problems you're referring to and what do you want each person listening to this to think about or to do about them? Everyone at every moment in history, of course, thinks they stand in extraordinary times. (laughs) But we are at an extraordinary moment in history right now. I mean, when I think the pandemic is the first shared human experience that all humans on planet Earth have had at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. It's the first synchronous experience ever, right? So even in that, right, we've got this kind of planetary awareness that is, so we are in this particular moment. We're also in this particular moment that we have no idea if we're falling deeper into the hole or we don't know if we're at the beginning, the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end. We, we don't know, right? So we are at this moment of 
like super uncertainty still. This moment that humanity is going through can be seen as a portal or a hole. If you think you're, mm. it, it, you make the decision whether you're going to fall deep into the hole or you think about it as a portal that we pass through to come to something else, right? Mm. So, and I am of the portal side, right? I believe this is a portal. We're going somewhere. This is really kind of or the opportunity to go somewhere is really interesting. So now with that framing of this particular, particularly important moment that when, when we're having this conversation, you asked me the question. I really like the framing of design 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, mm-hmm. right? Design 1.0 being the design of messages and products. Design 2.0 being that of experiences. 3.0 is organizational change in organizations. And 4.0 being really designed at a planetary scale with human or actually life at the center, you know, not just human-centered design, design, life-centered design at the center, right? And this particular moment, I think we are also making that transition from design 3.0 to design 4.0, right? whether it's kicking and screaming because we can't help it or whether we want to go there, we are making that transition. That's what's happening in this moment, right? So when I think about, again, this notion of the responsibility of design, the opportunity of design and responsibility of design, it just turns out that this particular transition that we're making from design 3.0 to 4.0, this is scary, big, complex, VUCA, right? volatile, Mm. uncertain, full of change and ambiguity, right? And there's not many other disciplines who can take a leadership role in doing this, except our own discipline that is, but in its very DNA is future-oriented and Mm. loves VUCA situations, right? And thrives when there's volatility, uncertainty, change and ambiguity. Right, that's when it does best. Everything in those frameworks, even using visuality in the service of problem solving, the whole idea of visioning the future. Because every time we do design, it is this ridiculously <laughs> insane, brave act. Something doesn't exist, and we are at place, and we claim with this abductive logic, it mm. will exist. And the only reason that we knowing that exists is because we've gone through these processes before and this new thing existed, right? So we're convicted that this new will exist and so it gives us the energy to move forward. There are not many disciplines that look forward into the future that way. Most look backwards and increment from the past. So at this moment, when the planet moves from this 3.0-ish to 4.0 time and design as our discipline moves, right? I think that is the calling. That's the opportunity. That's the leadership opportunity for this discipline, right? For this minority discipline, that's the leadership opportunity. And there's a lot of stepping up into this leadership opportunity too, because there's also these other kind of dark patterns of reluctant leadership that we have in the design profession, but that's another whole conversation, I think. So um, did that answer your question? 
It sure did. And what a great, a great challenge and opportunity to contemplate and end the show on today. Surya, it's been such a enjoyable and expansive conversation. It's certainly given me cause to think of a few new things. I feel much sharper having had it. And I really appreciate the scope of thinking that you've brought to this conversation and the energy. So thank you for so generously sharing your stories and your insights with me today. Thank you, Brendan. Boy, you ask good questions. That is <laughs> so much fun. Oh, you're most welcome, Surya. I'm glad you had a good time. And if people want to find out more about you, what you're doing with authentic design, more about design swarms, what's the best way for them to do that? I would say the, uh, the, the place to begin really, uh, LinkedIn is really becoming a repository where, you know, everything is living. So that's, that's a good starting place just because there is the world of authentic, there's the world of design swarm, and there's other writing and so on. So uh, LinkedIn, Surya Bank on LinkedIn would be the best place. Perfect. Thanks, Surya. I'll make sure that we link to your LinkedIn profile and also to anything else that I've referenced in my preparation today. There are some great talks that Surya's given, so it will be available in the show notes for everybody. And to everybody, thanks for tuning in. It's been great having you here and to listen into this wonderful conversation about design and the opportunity that lies ahead for us as designers and as, as a race, as the human race. Everything, as I mentioned, will be covered in the show notes, including my profile. You'll be able to find that there at the very bottom. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, and also pass the show along. Send someone a link if you feel that they would get value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, like I said, you can find my profile at the bottom of the show notes on YouTube and on all the podcast platforms, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And remember, keep being brave. Keep being brave.